The Holy Gospel according to John, the fifth chapter. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and he will show him greater works than these, so that you will be astonished. Indeed, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wishes. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes in the one who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, the hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of humanity. Do not be astonished at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. The Gospel of our Lord. I don't want to preach a sermon on these texts. Honestly, I don't really want to preach at all. I would prefer to be quiet. I don't want to check the election coverage. I don't want to look at social media. I don't want to open my email. I don't feel very hopeful about our democracy. I really don't see much evidence that we have the political apparatus or even the political will to turn back from the policies and practices that are destroying our planet. I used to feel confident that if we just kept organizing one relationship at a time, we might rebuild the church, the nation, the world. Now it seems as though people are more interested in being right than being in relationship. closing ranks instead of closing gaps. And it makes me tired. I just want the world to quiet down. 
The book of Job famously begins with a series of catastrophes that would leave anyone feeling desperate and hopeless. Job is introduced as a wealthy and pious man, blessed with seven sons and three daughters and thousands of sheep and camels and oxen and donkeys and servants enough to attend to and care for them all. But more than being simply what scripture describes as the greatest of all the people in the East, Job was devout, rising early each morning to offer sacrifices to God on behalf of his children, just in case they had sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Then, in a day, they are all taken from him. His children, his possessions, and shortly thereafter, even his health. He loses everything and sits down among the ashes. And the rest of the book is a rich portrait of grief in all of its weight and pain, all of its anger and cynicism. The book of Job is unsparing as it names our despair and our confusion, along with our struggle to care for one another well in the face of life's chaos and capriciousness. Bildad, along with his two friends, Eliphaz and Zophar, arrive early to comfort and to console Job after all his losses. And, you know, for the first seven days, they simply sit with him and accompany him in his grief without speaking a word. However, as Job's shock begins to thaw and his anger at the world begins to emerge, his friends find themselves uncomfortable with what he has to say. I think, like any of us would be, they're horrified by the scale of Job's loss, and so they start making speeches, offering explanations for why these horrible things have happened. Eliphaz is the first to say it. Job must have sinned. Think now, Eliphaz says. Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. But then Bildad comes along and suggests that perhaps it was Job's children and not Job who sinned and thereby earned this punishment from God. He says, if your children sinned against God, God delivered them into the power of their transgression. And if you will seek God and make supplication to the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely then God will be roused on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. But Job rejects both of these explanations, asserts his independence, which the text also affirms so that we know that his friends' rationales are baseless. Instead, Job laments. He says, I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. And this is more than his friends can take. When the third of Job's friends, Zophar, finally speaks, he has nothing but rebuke to offer to Job. 
should your babble put others to silence? And when you mock, Zophar says, shall no one shame you? And this is how it goes round and round for three cycles. Job's friends who had come to comfort and to console him, to accompany him in his grief, end up blaming him and shaming him for his anger and for his confusion and for his despair. The passage assigned for today that Nicholas read for us begins with the last of the speeches by Job's <clears throat> friends, who once again offers theological platitudes and frankly, spiritual malpractice in the face of Job's suffering. He says, dominion and fear are with God. How then can a mortal be righteous before God? If even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in God's sight, how much less a mortal who is a maggot and a human being who is a worm? This is the closing argument made by Job's friends. God is great. We are nothing. Remember your place. Job's reply to Bildad drips with anger and sarcasm. How you have helped one who has no power. How you have assisted the arm that has no strength. How you have counseled the one who has no wisdom and given much good advice. Job rails at the cruelty of a theological response to suffering that reinforces a sense of powerlessness among those who have been stripped of all agency of their own. And Job then goes on to affirm everything that the friends have said about the transcendence of God. Yes, God has hung the earth upon nothing. Yes, God can bind up the waters in thick clouds. Yes, God can still the sea and on and on. But the conclusion Job draws from all of this is, these are indeed but the outskirts of God's ways and how small a whisper do we hear of God? How small a whisper do we hear of God? But the thunder of God's power, who can understand? Job doesn't deny God's majesty or power. Job's complaint is that the God of the universe is too transcendent, too far removed from human plight. How small a whisper do we hear of God? Have you ever spent the afternoon in the hospital sitting next to the bed of a friend or a family member as they slept? Have you waited in the dark for a child to fall asleep so that they won't have to be afraid? Have you shown up for the funeral of a friend's parent, someone maybe you never had even met, so that your friend wouldn't have to grieve alone. There is power in the mere fact of our presence with one another. Apart from anything we might say or any explanation we might try to offer. And to be fair, Job's friends attempt to offer this presence. 
but they are soon overwhelmed by the magnitude of Job's grief, and they just can't stop themselves from speaking and making things worse. But Job doesn't want answers from his friends. He wants answers from God. How small a whisper do we hear from God? Job wants answers from God, and so do I. And so do you, I'd venture to say. Sure, we've learned the right things to say in the face of death and loss. We've learned all the explanations for suffering. We can talk about free will or co-creation or the immortality of the soul or process theology. When the moment comes for speech, we do need to be prepared to speak. But it's before that. That's what I'm talking about. Before that. Can we be silent and sit with each other? Sit with the pain and the longing and the loneliness of life before a God whose transcendence can actually feel like absence? Can we listen to the voice of grief and loss and fear without escaping into explanations? We're at the beginning of an extended season of Advent, observing seven weeks instead of the usual four. The texts are actually, the texts are actually the same. We're still gathering for worship around November's predictable themes of eschatology and the reign of God. We're just calling it Advent and noticing if or how that changes our experience of this month. When I bring the idea of Advent to this story from Job, which is to say when I bring the, ad, the idea of Advent to the story of my own despair, my own disquiet, my own fear that the world is ending, it helps. Advent lights candles in the lengthening night, reminding me that there is a presence that is coming into the world already and still not yet. Advent begs and pleads the way my heart is begging and pleading, O come, O come, Emmanuel, come close. Come from the heavens to the earth. Come from the future to the present. Advent speaks of new life, naked and fragile, shielded from all the death-dealing powers of this world. Advent makes a promise that God is with us, that God does speak into our lives, that God's small whisper will one day grow into a living word that cannot be bound, not even by death. Advent sets hope on a wheel and pushes it forward. In an essay titled, A Poem of Difficult Hope, author and poet Wendell Berry says this about the difficult relationship between speech and hope. He writes, the distinguishing characteristic of absolute despair is silence. There is a world of difference between the person who believing that it is no use 
says so to themselves or to no one. And the person who says it aloud to someone else. A person who marks their trail into despair remembers hope and thus has hope, even if only a little. Taken like this, Job's responses to his friends, his railing against God is not proof that he's given up hope any more than is my chronic despair or your pessimism. We haven't given up yet, but we are brokenhearted. It is into this chasm between our dashed hopes and our wildest dreams that God will be born, that God will speak God's word into flesh, that God will join us. This is the promise behind all the talk of the son and the father in John's gospel passage for today, which follows immediately after a scene in which Jesus has healed those the world has left for dead and is accused of heresy for claiming to be a child of God. And frankly, I don't really want to touch the reading from John because it is so propositional that it might feel like the kind of God-splaining that Job's friends are engaged in. But I do just want to point to this one lovely little pairing in the two texts, this duet of melody and counterpoint going on between these two readings. In his despair, Job laments how small a whisper do we hear of God. And in his response to the theologians of his day, those who, like Job's friends, feel obligated to defend God's honor, Jesus replies, anyone who hears my word and believes the one who sent me has eternal life, that one does not come under judgment, but has passed from death into life. God heard Job's cry. and turned up the volume on that scant whisper, speaking into our lives a living word to bring new life to people and places left for dead. It is as though God speaks from a future Job has yet to experience, to say, I heard you. You're not alone. One broken-hearted parent to another, sitting together among the ashes, weeping for the world. Amen. <laughs>